So I've decided what my next job will be. I want to be a social media influencer. It's a real thing. And here's how it will work. I set up profiles on as many social media platforms as I can stomach and make some YouTube videos giving advice to people on something. Fitness, not me. Food, better. Drink, better. But the best is lifestyle and clothes, lots of clothes. So I'll buy some the big-name designer clothes, visit a few really hot and trendy restaurants and clubs, and take pictures, lots and lots of selfies and videos, too. YouTube and Instagram are probably my best bets. They'll give me lots of chances to plug stuff and create hashtags including hashtags for the brands of clothes I wear and my beverages of choice. People will like me. Well, I mean like me in a social media way. They'll share my posts, and the people who make the stuff I post about will give me free stuff. I can even set things up so that every time somebody watches one of my YouTube videos or buys what I tell them to buy, I'll get money and more free stuff. Sounds pretty good. And the title, Social Media Influencer. I like it, Influencer. Now, I've spent years, since I was 16, trying to influence people for Jesus. That's when I started talking to other people about being Christian, and that's the first time I preached. And I have preached and taught and sung and coached and answered a zillion questions. But I haven't attracted a personal following, and I certainly haven't made a fortune. So I must have been doing something wrong. If only we had social media 43 years ago. No, not. John chapter 1, at least the last half of it. As I was meditating on the text this week, I remembered. I remembered sitting in a classroom in high school, a meeting of interschool Christian fellowship, about a half dozen of us, most of us were Presbyterians, with a teacher. And the teacher read a paraphrase of John chapter 1. And I heard Jesus ask, What are you looking for? I couldn't say. But then he said, come and see. Come and see. I kept a journal then. I wasn't very diligent about it. But that night I wrote just one word. Accepted. Come and see. Now, this is John's version of the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And John is a lot like a high school English teacher. He's always challenging us to look for the hidden meaning behind the words. Now, I was a good student, and I worked very hard to do that. I, I didn't always succeed, so sometimes I just made stuff up. But I got good marks for the effort. And then a freshman English teacher set me free. He said, if the meaning's hidden, the writer's not worth reading. Something like that. 
With John, there are always at least two levels, and at least one is hidden from us because we don't live in John's world, and there are only a couple of us here today who have ever tried to study John's Greek. Jesus asks, what are you looking for? And John the Baptist's former disciples ask, where are you staying? And Jesus answers, come and see. And there's meaning all over the place. Even when John says it's four o'clock in the afternoon, it's not just four o'clock. And when I think back all those years, it was probably about four o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus said to me, come and see. Spooky. Well, John's gospel is spooky sometimes. Where are you staying? Come and see. When John the Baptist says, look, there goes the Lamb of God, he's not pointing to a new way of being religious, a fresh take on following God's law, a more attractive lifestyle, though just about any lifestyle would be more attractive than John's, you know, standing in cold water wearing fresh animal hides, catching bugs for dinner and fighting bees and bear for honey. But when Jesus catches their attention, invites them to come and see. He doesn't offer them an easier way to be faithful, a more successful life as children of Israel. When he says, come and see, he invites them to a transformed world. He's not about religion. He's about relationship. Jesus doesn't model a lifestyle. He promises a whole new life. Not an easy life, not a way to make a fortune. The only free stuff we get if we are influenced to imitate Jesus is love, forgiveness, peace, acceptance. And we could spend years working our way through the jungle of John's words. We could spend hours on these 16 verses. But let's focus on one word. The first disciples asked Jesus, where are you staying? Staying. It's one of John's favorite words. He uses it more often than all the other New Testament writers combined. Stay. Or maybe we are more familiar with the word abide. The first to follow Jesus well, they wonder where they'll end up for the night if they leave the bank of the Jordan and follow him. After all, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe it's the eve of the Sabbath. So where they arrive after four o'clock in the afternoon, they're going to have supper, and then they have to stay where they are because it's Sabbath. They have to stick around. But they want to know more, according to John. They want to know where Jesus lives, and can they live there too? The words stay, stick around, remain, abide. In John's gospel, it doesn't just mean location. It means relationship. It means belonging. It means home. Jesus says, come and see he invites them and us to stick around with him. Not just to stick around for a while, but for our whole lives. 
That's discipleship. And what do they see when they get to Jesus' place? If it is Sabbath Eve, Friday evening, maybe they see a family getting the house ready for the Sabbath, getting the house ready for the day of rest, preparing the best meal of the week. Anticipation is in the air and welcome because there's always room for more at the Sabbath meal. I like to imagine they see devotion, love, faith in action, that they see home. And the second, they follow Jesus' invitation and see, really see. Some of them start thinking about who they can tell. Ask, follow, tell. Seek, see, share. This is evangelism, according to the New Testament. We heard about it on Christmas Eve. According to Luke, the the shepherds come to Bethlehem and see. Christ, whose birth the angels sing, they adore on bended knee, and then they go out to tell everybody, to tell everybody they meet what they have seen and heard. And we heard it today in the Epiphany reading from Matthew. Those kings of Orient spend a lot of time seeking, and they bring with them the aspirations, the hopes and fears of all the years, and after they see and leave their gifts, they go home carrying their discovery out into the whole world. John tells us, if we abide, if we stick around with Jesus, unplug ourselves from all the dying sources of energy we rely on and connect to a new source of life, that life in us will overflow and draw others in. So what kind of life is attractive? What kind of life is irresistible to seekers and questioners, to people who struggle to keep any faith, to people whose hold on hope is slipping away, people who want to know they're loved and that they can love in return. What kind of person is an invitation to come and see? Well, it's a lot like a social media influencer, someone people can see and hear living with delight, freedom, a full life, It's a sham, but a lot of people find it irresistible. There's also a false promise of home, a place where everybody is happy and fulfilled. And when you walk down the street and go into that club, people will see and they will be attracted to you because of the labels you're wearing. Social media influencers get it, and advertisers got it long before social media influencers existed, but it's what Christians tend to forget. People need Jesus, not his church, at least not in its institutional manifestations and programs and strategic plans. Seeking souls are looking for relationship, not religion, community, not creed. Words are important. 
But it's a life that demonstrates the truth, the value of the words that invites others to risk we might have something worth believing. Okay, so Presbyterians love words. And we are by nature afraid to be identified as personal evangelists. We like to do things together. There's safety in numbers. There's strength in numbers. A congregation can be the kind of community that people want to be part of, not simply to meet their own needs, but to share in a truly meaningful life. David Lowe's was one of my teachers many years ago. He's still around because he's still younger than I am. And so he recently set two questions for preachers to ask when we preach on this story from John's Gospel. Listen closely. What is your favorite thing? What is your favorite thing about the life we share in this congregation? What is your favorite thing about the life we share in this congregation? Take this question home. Think it over. Talk it over. Maybe let me know. And there's a second question. Now hold on to it until you've had time to work through the first. The second question is, would you be willing to invite someone you know to come and see and share in your favorite part of our congregational life? Would you be willing to invite someone you know to come and see and to share in your favorite part of our congregational life? Now, it's just inviting one person to share in just one thing to start. The one thing you can talk about with the greatest delight. Let's try it. Let's see what happens.